Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be starting in verse 27. When you're there, say, God is good. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Glad that you're here. And if it's your first time at Westside, man, did you pick a day to come, right? Um, If you listened or heard the text uh, that was read to you, there's no sermon intro, there's no attention grabber, because Jesus is provocative enough um, today in the text. And so we continue in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're just going verse by verse through this, and it's going to take us um, all the way up to Christmas time. And so what we're doing is we're just taking an opportunity, um, we're entitling the series called Jesus Uncensored. And so we're just letting Jesus speak um, to these issues, and we're staying very, very close to the text. And um, last week, we were introduced to a phrase that Jesus is using. Um, He says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And we learned last week what theologians call this is the antithesis. Um, What this is is placing one concept next to another concept to show you the true concept, if that makes any sense at all. Free seminary education right there for all of you today. And so um, what Jesus is not doing is Jesus is not pitting himself against Moses and God's law saying, we are doing away with this. Rather, what Jesus is doing is he's giving the proper interpretation. Um, If you notice, Jesus does not say the words, it is written. Every time Jesus quotes scripture, he says, it is written, or thus says the Lord. Rather, he is saying, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And what he's doing is he's really trying to deprogram his disciples and the crowd from people that we've learned about, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of these people, who basically what they said is the way that you can measure your right standing, the theological term is the righteousness of God, the way that you can measure that is by external looks, by what you do. And if what you do and you go and mark off the proper boxes, um, read your Jesus Calling devotional and have your quiet time with the Lord and do all of these things every day, um, then you're okay, right? What Jesus really does is he gets to the heart of the matter, literally. And he says there's something under this behavior that we have. We have to look at the motives. And Jesus is addressing the heart. Last week he equated anger with murder, Right, And we were all just laid bare begging for God's mercy right? Um, last week. And this week, Jesus has very provocative words. And he says that lust is equivalent to adultery. Very provocative when you think about it in 2017. And I think what we need to do is do a little bit of work um, before we get into this concept. Because really what underlies all of this is our view of sex. And we're going to talk about sex in church, and it's going to be real awkward, so that's okay, all right? You can breathe a sigh of relief. But um, I had a pastor teach this, and I'm going to sort of borrow from him, but it's very helpful. And there's really only three ways that we can view this concept in our life. The first one is this, is that we can view sex as God, 
And I would predominantly say that that's probably the culture's view. Um, when you think about it, there's nothing that the culture um, talks about and screams about and shouts about, even on your Snapchat, on the news, on anything. There is always something pertaining to this idea. And really what our culture says is throw off the restraints, do what feels right to you, and let's move in this direction. But what I find so interesting about the culture's view is that they seem to elevate this idea of sex and be so predominant, but yet they are never satisfied with it. So there's always a Fifty Shades of Grey Part 9 coming out, right? Or there's always Cosmopolitan. Last week it was nine months to, or nine ways to improve your marriage, and now it's 12 ways to improve your... I mean, it's always this idea of searching and going through this. And really, when we see that our desire is let loose with no bounds in this, we start seeing it bleed through um, industries like pornography and these type of things. And I did a little bit of research this week, and some of the statistics that I found were pretty fascinating, really. Did you know that the number one most Googled word is sex, right? The number one most Google word. There is not even like a second place at all on that. 92% of the top billboard songs on the radio either mention the word sex or the song is about sex. Two out of every three TV shows include sexual content or direct sexual references. And then this last statistic, the pornography industry in 2015, their revenue stream was larger than Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, and Netflix combined. And the statistic actually said that um, prostitution, child pornography, black market pornography, and sex trafficking actually wasn't involved in that statistic because they don't pay taxes. Um, And so you could actually probably double that statistic. And let us not be so naive. I'm not trying to be the preacher and says, look at what the world's doing. Um, The church has no different statistics on this, to our shame. So um, we are on it today. We are not like around a topic. We're not like close to a topic. We are on the topic today. And what I love about this idea and seeing this is that, you know, it, it's kind of like the, um, the illogical thing that our society says is, you know, we don't want to be defined by sex, but we have parades defining sexuality. And we say that we um, do sex however you want, but yet we're never satisfied in which the way that we do sex. And so, like, there's always this inequality and this logical concept when we look at this idea of this. But the pendulum always swings the other way. And another uh, not correct way to look at it is that sex is gross, right? So like the pendulum swings the other way, and it's like we don't talk about this. This is a dirty word, right? We don't ever talk. We don't ever do anything about this. And maybe you grew up in a home um, that was a product of divorce or adultery, and so you had women that spoke ill of men, or you had men that spoke ill of women and degraded them. Or it was just very conservative, kind of like leave it to beaver, right? Your mom vacuumed wearing pearls, which never happens, right? <laughs> right? And so like it's this conservative, like we don't ever, we can never speak of this or anything like that. And, and quite frankly, the Bible doesn't support that view either. Um, I mean, like we literally have God speaking the cosmos into existence. Then he creates our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he tells them, right, 
Get after it, yo, right? Be fruitful and multiply. This is a good thing. God didn't turn around and go, oh my goodness, what are they doing, right, right? I mean, like, we have a whole book of the Bible called the Song of Solomon, right? If you want to have a great, awkward family devotion, just go, we're going to read the Song of Solomon tonight, kids. It's about a husband and wife describing their marriage night, right? I mean, it's like, so God speaks of this. We don't degrade this. We don't elevate this to some unbeknown statistic, right? And parents, I would, I would tell you this. Um, I have did some studying this week, and actually um, teenagers that grow up in a home that sex is actually a free topic to talk about have a lower statistics of uh, participating in premarital sex where it's like a dirty word and we don't discuss this. It's sort of like, you know, you come home from Christmas shopping, right? You put all the bags in the closet and you tell your kids, you better not look in that closet, right? As soon as you go to the grocery store, kids are all up in the closet. You know what I mean? And actually, parents, even though you think that you're talking about it, you're not really talking about it. Um, The GLK Research Group said the report found that 42% of parents say they've talked to their teens, quote, many times about how to say no to premarital sex, but only 27% of teens actually agree with that statistic. I mean, because like the media and like this is a conversation all the time that's taking place, and especially for sixth grade boys, not to make it awkward for you, but I mean like so if you think that you're actually talking to your kids about this, you're not really talking to your kids about this. Another report found that, in fact, 34% of teens say they have never or only once had the conversation with their mom or their dad about sex or sexuality. Very interesting when you think about it. And so this isn't something that we lock away at home and that we don't discuss this and we can't talk about it. But it's also not something that we elevate to God-like status with our time, talents, and treasure. So there has to be another way to view this. And I would propose to you that the biblical worldview is that sex is a gift, It's not God and it's not gross, but rather that this is a gift that God has given. And we see this in the opening pages of Genesis. We see our God speaking the cosmos into existence. And there's a rhythm. God speaks and he sees and then he says, it was good. It was good. And in Genesis 1.27, what theologians call the Imago Dei, It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Sexuality is a part of God's creation in light of this. And this is something that is good. But rather we understand Genesis 3 teaches that when sin entered the picture, what humanity's problem is now is that we take God's good gift and we elevate it above the giver. And the Bible has a word for that, and it's called idolatry, where we take the gift and we elevate it above everything else. And so there's a great quote by D.A. Carson. I want to bury the lead, but this is where we're going today. What the world says about sex is any time and any place. And what God says about sex is my timing and my place. And Jesus speaks to this issue. This is why I love Jesus and I love the Bible, right? People are always like, the Bible, and so outdated, right? And here we have Jesus literally at the heart of the issue talking about this topic. And what does he do to understand how we've warped these desires and how we've seen this take place through adultery and through lust? 
He does three things that I want to look at today. He assesses the command, then we have to acknowledge the center, and then what we have to do is avoid the consequences. And Jesus shows us how to do this. The first thing that he does is we have to assess the command. Look at verse 27. Have your eyes on Scripture so you know I'm not making this up. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now remember, Jesus is opposing the Pharisees' view. And what they're saying is our hands have not committed any act. So therefore, we are okay. And we will look down upon our nose at everybody else who's ever been involved in anything like that. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The command still stands. God is for the covenant of marriage. And, and what is it? Like, we don't like the word adultery. Why? Because it's harsh. So what we do in a society now is we go, well, they just had an emotional affair an affair, right? Like we're watching soap operas or something, right? Jesus calls it for what it is, and he says adultery. And adultery is any man or woman that are under the covenant of marriage who have participated in a physical act or will see later on, even with their heart, with someone other than their spouse. So what we have to understand, we have to know where Jesus stands first. And very simply, it's this. Jesus opposes adultery. Jesus is against anything that threatens the covenant of marriage. So let me break this down and put the cookies on the bottom shelf. God did not tell you to divorce your wife and run off with the secretary. That was a demon, okay? Right? None of this pawning stuff off on God's stuff, okay? God is not for anything that breaks the covenant of marriage. Jesus is opposed to adultery. But what we have to do is take it even further. We have to get down under this. And this is what I love about Jesus is, listen, everybody gets it today, right? Everybody leaves offended. You ready? Here we go. Here's the second point. You have to acknowledge the center. What does this mean? Where does this come from? Where does this start? Well, we have to break this down. I normally don't do this, but um, Jesus speaking in the Greek is, is, is very rich. And what he says is, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart has already committed adultery. Now, Jesus is a predominantly male culture. And, and, and so don't get offended by this idea because actually, ladies, um, you are quickly reaching males in consuming, being the number one consumer of pornography and illicit sexual material. Um, not many men went out and bought Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that, okay? And so this isn't, don't, don't play that on me right here. But Jesus uses a specific word. He does a stair step, just like he did last week talking about anger. How do you know that you're here? Well, last week he talked about the words that we use. When you say, you fool, raka, when you look down upon someone, call them a non-human, right? It's, that's the idea where murder has already taken place in your heart, and he does the same thing. He says, look, oh, but listen to the word that he uses. The word that Jesus uses for look is the Greek word blepo, which means to linger and to stare and to wonder at. As I was studying and doing a word search this week, Jesus actually uses this word again in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. And this is the King Jimmy, so there's a little of these and thous for you fundamentalists to make you feel okay. It says this, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. 
For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Listen, the way that angels look at the very face of God. Why are the angels looking at God? Because they are worshiping. Oh, now we're on it. We're on it now. And Jesus says, this look, this blepo, this lingering, this is an act of worship. See, everybody came in here today worshiping. The question is not if you worship. The question is what you worship. And so whenever we come in here and we sing this idea, Jesus, like that's not kumbaya. We're not killing kumbaya, my Lord. That's not like to get you the warm and fuzzies and the feelies and all that type of stuff. That is a declaration of all out war that we sing. That is an anthem that we declare. We declare Christ, our allegiance is to you. Jesus, we love you and nothing else. That's what we say whenever we worship. And whenever that worship gets distorted, and we place something else in that center, that is the act of worship. And I know what you're doing. You're, you're arguing with me in your pew, and you're like, a look? But what's a look, Jason? Is it like a look, or is it like a look? Or is it like, I mean, what am I supposed to I mean, like, you know what I mean? I mean, I work. I got all this type of stuff. I mean, oh, man, right? I know what you're doing. You want to split hairs on me. That's okay. I got something for you, too. I got something for you, too. And I think it's probably better that we turn to a deeply theological profoundly Christocentric movie called The Matrix, right, with Keanu Reeves himself, because I don't know where you thought I was going with this or anything, and so, um, you know, and so what we see, I don't even know how to describe this movie, it's so crazy, right, but it's a sci-fi movie, and what we have is in a scene, we have Morpheus teaching Neo how to kind of battle and combat the bad guys, and they're walking through this scene in this scenario, and Morpheus is teaching him how the matrix works and who he needs to be on the lookout for and all of these things. And there's people bumping by, and they're on a busy street corner in what appears to be New York City. And as Morpheus is telling Neo about all of these things, a woman in a red dress walks by. And Neo quits listening to Morpheus, and he follows the woman in the red dress. And then finally Morpheus turns around and he says, Neo, were you listening to me? Or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? And Neo goes, oh, oh. And Morpheus says, look again. And when he looks again, he sees a loaded gun. The second looks the loaded gun. When you capture that image and you take that image away and you store it away and it becomes an act of worship unto yourself. Listen, I believe that the Bible describes beauty the best. I believe that the Bible has the highest standard for men and for women. Like the Bible recognizes when someone's fine, right? In the Old Testament, we see Jacob with Rachel, right? And the Bible says that Rachel was beautiful in form and figure. Eat that, Kim K. You know what I'm saying, right? The Bible's like, Rachel was banging, man. She was beautiful, right? We can recognize beauty, yes. But here's the difference. Does our affections bubble up to God or does it stay on the object? Because God gave us beauty so that our worship wouldn't just expire on the object, but rather that that beauty would spur worship into us. It's the same problem with food. It's the same problem with money. God gave you taste buds. So when you eat that triple B burger with those jalapenos on it, praise be to Jesus for that thing, right? I mean, that is good. But you know what's not good? Seven triple B burgers. That's called gluttony and that's a sin. Right? Money is good. 
But it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. And so whenever we take this and our worship becomes about the object, that's whenever it becomes the problem. But Jesus takes it down again. Look at what he says. He says, whoever looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent... Here's what we just talked about. It's this, the word lustful intent in the original language is the Greek word epithemia, huge word. And here's what it means, over-desire. Over-desire. Do you know what it really like almost looks like for an illustration for you? It's as if you put a horse in the barn and you allowed that horse to freely eat the hay. Those of you know what would happen to that horse. It would eat that hay until it died. That's what Jesus is saying is the over-desire. See, the problem is not the desire. The problem is the over-desire and the object of desire. And Jesus says when that lust gets ignited and runs free in light of that, because here's what lust is, right? What lust is, lust desires the pleasures of sex but not the person. It turns the person into an object, And so here's what you're saying if you're entering in, if you're dating or if you're engaged and you're saying that I want to have sex with you before marriage, what you're saying is I want to be so physically connected to you, but I don't want to be emotionally connected, financially connected. I don't want to be, I mean, the state doesn't even recognize our marriage, but I think that we should, you know, be one and be together. And what you're doing is actually dehumanizing that person. And if this is an act of worship, right, then it's our worship gone awry. And so whenever we enter into it, you know, like illicit sex or sex before marriage underneath the covenant of marriage, right? That still is an act of worship, right? It's an act of demonic worship and your bed's the altar. Is that too much for the 11 a.m. or can I keep going this morning, right? And what Jesus is saying, listen, here's how I've always explained it. Fire is good, right? Fire is good. If you watch the Bear Grylls show and he says that you're stranded somewhere, the first thing that you need is shelter and fire. Fire is a good thing. But I don't know if you've watched the news and you've seen what's taking place in Montana. Fire's not good when it's set loose. Fire's good in the fireplace at home. Fire's not good on the living room rug because then it burns the whole house down. And simply all God is saying is, listen, the way in which I've prescribed this is the best way. Is anybody mad at where Saturn's at, right? Anybody saw the eclipse and was like, that was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I would have done that completely different. I would have had the moon rotate, done all kinds of stuff, right? Then why are you mad at God's design for sex? And simply what he's saying is, listen, when this over-desire, when this act of worship, when all of this begins to take place, this is what we understand. But where does it happen? Where does it first take place? And what he says is, with her in his Heart, oh, there's the word again. Gosh, I wish Jesus wouldn't have said it. Heart. We learned last week, that's the seat of emotions. That's what, listen, your heart is the real you. That's the real you. And maybe many of you do a good job of putting on the mask and hiding that and doing all of those things. But in reality, the heart is really you. And listen to me. Adultery takes place in the heart and in the head before it ever does in the bed. 
before it ever takes place anywhere else, before you ever hear of the news, before any of that ever happens, it has first taken place long overdue in the imagination and this blepo, this act of worship, this looking, this lingering, and this staring. Here's what I'm trying to say. Adultery is the fruit, but lust is the root in the heart. And what Jesus is saying is you have to acknowledge the center first. Because here's what many of you have done. And you're so exhausted from it. And my prayer today is to set you free from this type of false Christianity, which is just behavior modification. Like some of you think that Jesus died to register you Republican and make you good. What a poor excuse for Christianity. Christianity is not bad people becoming good. Christianity is dead people coming alive. And all behavior modification is, is like mowing your lawn. You know what it's like. You mow your lawn, you're super satisfied. I don't know if you're like me, but I love mowing my lawn, walking by going, I did that. I did that, man. And then in the morning, in the middle of my lawn is that demonic little flower. That is a weed, right? And and you can mow over that, and you can mow over that, and you can mow over that, and it's going to pop up every time. But until you do something with the root of that weed, it's never going to go away. And so many of you live in a form of Christianity that is sin, confess, repent, sin, confess, repent, sin, confess, repent, sin, confess, repent. Anybody prayer request? Sin, confess, repent, sin, confess, repent. I just got a prayer request. I just think, right? Because there's a reality that in the depths of your heart, you are not letting Christ have access to something. There's a great theologian by the name of John Owen. And John Owen wrote a book that would be a fantastic coffee table book for you to just place in the center of your home. And dads, especially when your daughter's dating, just have this book sitting there. It's called The Mortification of Sin. Just let it sit right there and let the young man read that right on the coffee table, right? The mortification, the death of sin, right? And here's what John Owen says. A man may beat down the bitter fruit from an evil tree until he is weary. While the root abides in strength and vigor, the beating down of the present fruit will not hinder it from bringing forth more. This is the folly of some men. They set themselves with all earnestness and diligence against the appearing eruption of lust, but leaving the principle and root untouched, perhaps unsearched out, they make but little or no progress in the work of mortification." And what Jesus is saying is, you have to acknowledge the center of this first. We know that the command stands. We know what he speaks to. And now we know where this really takes place. This is a worship issue for us in our heart. And then the last thing that he teaches us is avoiding the consequences. And Jesus has very strong words here. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What's Jesus saying here? Do we take Jesus literally or do we take Jesus literarily? What's Jesus saying? Here's what I believe Jesus is saying. Christians are called to sever anything in their life that hinders their relationship with Christ. Anything. Anything. 
If you can't handle the internet at your house late at night, call Boycom and cancel the internet. If you can't handle Facebook, do away with Facebook. If you can't handle the relationship with that person, then today, listen, I give you full authority to call your boyfriend or girlfriend and say, my pastor told me I needed to break up with you today, right? Just pawn it all off on me. What Jesus is saying is if you cannot handle this and it hinders your relationship with me, then you need to sever yourself from this. So if you work at a job and you find yourself constantly walking by the secretary's desk and you go to the bathroom 37 times, find a new job. Because Christ is that important. The reason why. Why does Jesus command this? Because what Jesus is asking is this. Jesus is simply asking this. Am I this precious to you? Oh, am I this precious to you? Am I this valuable? Am I the Christ? Am I the Son of God? And if I am, if salvation is what Jesus says that it is, and he used the parable of the man, right? Right, we know about this parable. Jesus used the parable of a man who found some land, and on that land was great treasure. And that man went and sold his house and all of his personal belongings so he could buy that land. Because on that land was a treasure that was so great and profound. And Jesus Christ said, that is salvation. And anything that you know of, it's the joy of salvation that comes into your life. Listen, grace is not just pardon from sin. Grace is power to not sin. When we love and we behold the beauty of Christ and we play, listen, that's why the Bible is so important. The Bible's not a fortune cookie. The Bible's not all Jeremiah 29, 11 on you, okay? That's why I need the promises of God. Why do I need them? Because when I behold the promises of God and I see the beauty of Christ and I see in 1 John chapter 4 that even though my heart condemns me, God is stronger than my heart. And I see in Revelation chapter 1 that Jesus Christ comes and his eyes are filled with fire and that his robe is dipped in blood and from his mouth comes a two-edged sword by which he judges the nations that he is the Christ and that he is the Son of God and that I use these promises in order to give me power to not sin. Listen to me. Is Christ precious to you? Would you forsake everything you have for Christ? If you had to let go of your family, if you had to let go of all the money, if you had to let go of all the acclimates that the world has to offer you, would you stand there? And that's the power. Late at night before you click on that screen, late at night before you send that text message, what will help you conquer that is knowing the beauty of Christ and lifting him high and knowing all that I have is counted at loss. For the sake of Jesus Christ, is he precious to you? Westside, is he beautiful to you? And if he is not, beg God for that desire. Ask him if there's any prayer that God would ever answer. Right? He teaches us to pray. Teach us to pray, Jesus. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Oh, that is the declaration of hell right there. God, hallowed be my name, be your name. May your name be above every other name in my life. God, may your name be above pornography. May it be above money. May it be above food. May it be above everything. God, may my true desire in life be your name and your fame and your glory. Why do you think we sing glory be to God? That is our desire. How serious is this? 
Jesus mentions the word hell two times in these verses. Jesus mentions the word hell five times in the Sermon on the Mount. And listen to me, he uses it twice in the context of sexual sin. It's the Greek word Gehenna, if you're trying to argue with me. You know what Gehenna was? Gehenna was a trash dump south of Jerusalem where people would bury their trash underground and light it on fire. And because it was underground, the fire never stopped. So when Jesus said that, the disciples sitting on the, on, on the side of the mountain could see the smoke of Gehenna in the background. And now people always ask me, Jason, do you really believe in a literal hell, like fire and stuff? Here's what I always say. Nope. Are you nervous about what I'm going to say? I say, no. I think it's much worse than that. There's a story told of Francis Schaeffer, and he had the Labrie Seminary there in France, and he escaped Western culture and was so burdened about Christianity, and theological students would come and study. And one day there was a debate at the dinner table about hell, and they were talking about it like a theological concept. And what broke the argument and discussion was Francis Schaeffer at the end of the table, and he was weeping, and he had tears rolling down his face. And he said, if you really believe this, how can you not talk about it without weeping? Because listen, if the gospel is this, if the gospel is Christ covering our shame and covering our nakedness and covering our guilt and giving us the robe of righteousness, for 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I, I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In this life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's substitution. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, God doesn't send people to hell. Hell is an act of worship. And what you're asking for in those moments is my true worship and my true desire is not for Christ, but it's for this. And what we understand that to be is full shame and full guilt, not paid for. What's the answer? Is it really this serious? Yes, but I believe that Jesus gives us the cure. I believe that Jesus chose that word look and that word blepo for a reason. So how can we beat this? How can we avoid lust by this? We can avoid lust by adoring Christ. Oh, by finding Christ more precious. By looking at him as being the son of God and finding his face beautiful and asking God to give us a deep desire for this. Listen, listen, we can conquer this. God has given us the power in the gospel for this. And this is something that you don't do in isolation. The reason why this is so serious is because it affects so many people. And if you're an idiot and you think that adultery and pornography only affects you, ask a kid who grew up in a house with it. It affects everyone. And it turns people to objects. And Jesus is standing there like a good father, not standing in judgment, casting judgment, but rather like a father who sees a child running into oncoming traffic saying, no, 
Don't go that way. Don't go that way. I'm your father and please hear my voice and please come to me. Please find me precious in this. Find me precious. So what are we to do? The band's going to come up and lead us in a specific time of response. And I wanted to do this a specific way today. Because this is heavy. The first thing that I want us to understand and do is confess. Confess this to God. Confess this to your spouse, to whoever you need. The Bible teaches us that when we confess our sins, there's something about how power is lost in light of that. And then to repent, to turn away from this, to ask God for a greater desire. But then this, to believe, to believe upon Christ. Because I speak to two people today. I speak to the first category of people who feel that they are covered in this shame and in this guilt. People who feel like I can never recover from this. That this sin defines me. I'm in the first group. And then the second group of people are people who are playing with fire. God, you're so close. This is so real. This is so real. And Jesus really is beautiful. In your bulletin, there's a prayer of confession and assurance. We're going to stand and we're going to read this together. Because I think sometimes people don't know what to do in this moment. They don't even know the words to say and to properly confess in these moments. So I want you to stand right where you're at. I want us to read these words out loud together. And then I want us to come to the table and to see the elements of grace. Let us read these words out loud. My God, I long to love you above all things and in all things. Help me to see and know when I have turned away from you, when I have been guilty of sin, when I have treated with your contempt your gift of grace and have rejected your call. I am deeply sorry for all actions and thoughts by which I have offended you, harmed others, or shunned growth as your child. With Peter, let me bitterly weep that I have denied you. And with Mary Magdalene, let me hear your gracious words. Your sin is forgiven. And then lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Christ, hear our prayers. Christ, have mercy on us. Christ, be beautiful. We pray this in the mighty and the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Come forward and partake in communion as you feel.